0: Well, I just love Sunday evenings. I, I really live for this moment, I think, in, in, in a lot of ways. This is a, a highlight of our day because here we are uh, having worshiped the Lord all day and spent some time together in the afternoon and so forth. And now um, we just want to hear from the Lord and hear some encouragement from his word. And very often on Sunday night, our, our emphasis is really on Christian living, and that's kind of where we are right now. And very often as we talk about living life, uh, suffering is part of that life, and, and I find that it's not uncommon for believers to use the fact that they're suffering in some way as sort of a justification for behaving badly. That if I'm anxious, I get to lash out at people around me. That if I'm sad, I get to withdraw from my responsibilities. Or maybe if I'm in turmoil of some sort, then I get to stop fulfilling my role as a family member or as a church member, that, that I use these times of suffering to say, time out, I don't need to fulfill my responsibilities. And for that very reason, I have found myself often uh, pondering and returning to the book of 1 Peter. And we, we won't be there tonight, but I just want to mention some things from 1 Peter. What's fascinating to me is his instruction in the face of suffering which in this case happens to be the persecution of the of the church and really his admonitions are nothing short of astounding because he's filled with compassion for the suffering it's very clear when you read first peter but he really cuts us no slack at all he doesn't allow us to have excuses in the opening chapters, opening verses of chapter 1, Peter celebrates the fact that God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to born, be born again. Our salvation is of God. And that we have an inheritance that's unassailable. It is completely reserved, waiting for us in heaven. And then, as if it's not really that big of a deal, he says in chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, and speaking of our salvation, and then almost like a parenthesis. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. He just kind of throws that in there. And he's talking to people who are potentially going to die for their faith, people who are going to endure arrest and and prison and torture for the sake of Christ. And so what does Peter say to do in response to suffering? Spend your life in counseling and feel sorry for yourself and blame your parents for everything. Is that what he says? Try to solve all of your problems so that you can be happy. Be depressed and anxious until all your ducks are in a row, and then you can praise God for the solutions that came. He doesn't say that. He says in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he, he opens that section saying, prepare your minds for action. And of course, as a good Bible student, we ask, well, what action is he speaking of? It is the action of conducting yourself in maturity and in obedience to Christ, to Seek after and to strive after holiness Holiness while you're suffering holiness while you're waiting for relief And it's my prayer that that really is one of the results of our series strength in the desert That's what I want to see happen in our lives To have strength to wait on the lord when it seems like he's not doing anything to relieve your suffering at the moment Not not communicating with you not giving any hope that there's going to be something better coming down the road And we've been building what we're calling a biographical theology, seeing what various people or groups in the Bible have done to successfully wait on the Lord, to be able to be faithful to the Lord while we wait. And so it's my hope that the Scripture will speak to you tonight. This has spoken to me, and and, and I pray that it will for you as well. And tonight we're going to have really the bar set extremely high for us, we're going to be looking at a woman who really exemplifies exactly what the Apostle Peter taught. A, a true example of this, a woman who is suffering greatly and waiting on the Lord for relief, and yet she's extremely resolute in her determination to remain holy, to conduct herself in the manner that's, that's worthy of her faith in the Lord. And so tonight's lesson is from Abigail, and Abigail's lesson is, Be remarkable in your godliness. Be remarkable in your godliness. And of course, we see Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. And if you're not there already, that's where we'll be this evening. 1 Samuel 25. It's very easy to find. If you get to 2 Samuel, you went too far and go back. Now, 1 Samuel 25, it's really important to understand the political and the national situation that was happening both in 1 and 2 Samuel because it becomes extremely vital later in the story. First and second Samuel, really one book in the Hebrew Bible, it chronicles the, the early beginnings of the kings of Israel. And it really shows the story that God's kingdom agenda would be facilitated, would be brought about by earthly kings appointed by and representing God. Hannah, the prophet Samuel's mother, she prays a prophetic prayer in First Samuel chapter two, which really inaugurates the beginning of the transition to a true kingdom. What will happen when a godly king of Israel comes? Well, Hannah, in her prophetic prayer, she says, This is what happens when a godly king will come. This is part of her prayer from First Samuel 2. The, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And so... While the implications for all of redemptive history of that prayer are immense, basically speaking, what Hannah is praying prophetically is that when a true king of Israel comes, it's going to make things better for those that have it. It's going to make the nation better. Well, you know the story. First, Saul was anointed king, and the Spirit of God empowered him. 1 Samuel 10 tells us that. But King Saul, the first king of Israel, now reigning, by the way, during the events of 1 Samuel 25, he was really a king designed by the people. He wasn't a king designed by God. He was a king appointed by God, but he wasn't designed by God. The people wanted a big, strong warrior king who was just like the kings of all of their neighbors around them. First Samuel 7 says this. So God gave them Saul. And the first king of Israel was certainly Saul, but he was really a king that Israel would love more than God would love. But it is significant that for the first time in several hundred years that the 12 tribes of Israel are really unified under one military leader. It's been the first time since Joshua and the conquest, and so it was a big step forward in the kingdom. But Saul was not a godly king. He was not a man who desired to trust in and please Yahweh and and I think it's important to remember that an earthly king was to be God's instrument to do God's will on earth, not to do as he pleases. He wasn't truly sovereign, he was simply a representative of God. And so in 1 Samuel 16, God had sent the prophet Samuel. Samuel is this king like judge who really begins the transition from the judges to the kings. And he sends him to Bethlehem to anoint the next king of Israel. David, a man after God's own heart, and and there's a clear transition now of the backing of God for the throne. First Samuel 16, beginning in verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went up to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. This is not, by the way, speaking of salvation one way or another. It's speaking of who the Lord is backing as king. And so now you have this interesting dynamic. The Spirit of God has departed from Saul because of his disobedience. The Spirit of God is with David, but Saul is still king. And so there's this gap of many years between the anointing of David as king and him actually taking the throne. And as a matter of fact, David himself has such respect for the throne of Israel and such a genuine love for Saul that David strongly and vehemently recognizes Saul's position, even when Saul is jealously seeking to kill David. David still respects the throne, respects Saul. In fact, the chapter just before the one we're looking at this evening, 1 Samuel 24, records that David had this perfect opportunity to kill Saul and take the throne, but he wouldn't take the life of God's king. He wouldn't do it. And so now David is in this sort of tension of political no-man's land. He's the rightful king of Israel. And by the way, even Saul himself said this, chapter 24, in verse 20. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. That's Saul speaking to David. And yet Saul is still on the throne. David's still wandering around with his Personal army of about 600 men that he won't let defeat Saul. He's had to hold them back and say, No, we will not do this by our own hand. And now we find David having gone to the south, and we pick up in 1 Samuel 25, beginning in the second half of verse 1, it's where the story really begins. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich; he had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now we have David travelling with his men, and now the scene switches to an unnamed man. His name isn 't given yet, and the reason is all the things that define this man are described first. He was a man of great wealth, he was in the fertile area of the deep south of Judah in in Man, which is close to Carmel. Um, this is south of Hebron, which is south of Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem. So it is, it is essentially sort of the, 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 the southern fertile belt similar to our deep south where we have great uh, uh, agriculture and so forth. And right now, it's at the time of sheep shearing. This is a, this is a party-like time because this is cash-in time for this man. A raw sheep's fleece today, depending on the quality and the level of preparation, which is called skirting a fleece, it can go anywhere from a, a just raw, unprepared fleece for about five dollars a pound, all the way to a well-prepared fleece at twenty-five dollars a pound. And that's today. And on average, a sheep will produce about a twenty-pound fleece. And so, if you do the math, on the low side, a fleece is worth about a hundred dollars, and on the high side, it's worth five hundred dollars. Meaning that this man, in today's money, today's dollars, was having a payday of between $300,000 and $1.5 million. All in the matter of maybe a week. That's quite a payday. And they did it twice a year. So, of course, there's a, there's a party-like atmosphere. But it's not until verse 3 that we even learn his name. Now, why is this? Well, very often in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, We don't learn somebody's name because we learn what is most important about that person first. We don't learn his name because his life is determined by his property. He's obsessed with all of his things, and ultimately nothing else matters to him. And now, having established this man's priorities, we get more information in verse 3. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. But the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calabite. Nabal is his name, and I don't know what his mother was thinking exactly because his name means fool or foolish. He's a man who lives totally for himself. Spiritually speaking, a, a fool is consumed with selfishness to the point of, of other lack of regard for others. As an example, Isaiah 32 6, the fool speaks folly. And his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to other error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. In other words, Nabal is as selfish as a human being can become. He's a spiritual disaster. He's harsh. This is a word that means difficult, severe. He's heavy-handed. He's cruel. He's fierce. And he's badly behaved. Badly is a root word in Hebrew, which just means evil. That he was wicked. Everything about him was evil. And then in contrast, we have Abigail, his wife. Not only is she beautiful, we understand what that means, but the text says that she's discerning. This is just a, a general, broad Hebrew word that basically, it can mean a lot of different things, but basically it just means that she was good. She wasn't just a pretty face. She had character. She had quality and so the comparison is clear the drama has been set the scene has been been established for us Nabal the fool is badly behaved he's evil Abigail is beautiful and discerning she's good and so this is a very clear contrast here and and Abigail very likely in this marriage out of a family arrangement probably from the time she was a little girl she was a suffering wife Nabal did give her substantial authority in the family business, as we'll see later as the servants listened to Abigail. But like any woman in her situation, certainly she must have wondered what it would be like to have a husband who cherished her, what it would be like to have a husband who was caring and kind. It wasn't so completely self-focused and difficult to be around. But we should note two things about Abigail. First of all, she was a true worshiper of the Lord. She was a worshiper of Yahweh. She had a genuine saving faith in the God of Israel. We'll see that she has a clear value on holiness, a value on integrity before God. Uh, She has an understanding of guilt and and desires to avoid sin, to avoid guilt. She understands that. She'll speak of, in verse 29, being in the care of the Lord your God. And, And in fact, later on, when David comes into the scene, we'll see that he even says that she is a messenger of God. There's nothing that she could do about Nabal, her cruel husband. He was a classic reviler, a classic abuser, a man that you did not cross, and she didn't have options. There were no options for her. So first, she was a true worshiper of the Lord, but there's something else you should know. Second, she was waiting on God to intervene on her behalf. This is what she was waiting for. She believed God was going to come and intervene to help her. The end of verse 26 tells us she believed that God was going to judge Nabal, that God was going to treat Nabal as one of his enemies, that God was going to take him down. But in the meantime, her faith in God instructed her as to how to behave while she waited. And her life is really going to serve as an example that the true believer in God, and for us as New Testament believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you can react wisely, you can react with godliness in the midst of a crisis, in the midst of waiting. And what is the crisis? Well, here it comes. The scene switches now back to David and to his men. They've come across the herds of Nabal, they protected them, they had guarded the shepherds, they had been employed by Nabal, they made sure that that none of the sheep went missing now there would have been plenty of sheep wrestlers who knew that Nabal wouldn't miss 10 or 20 sheep out of 3,000, there would have been plenty of them, and so now David, essentially a wandering warlord without a throne why would he stop and take the time to protect the great wealth of this man Nabal? Well, at the end of verse 3, it says of Nabal, he was a Calebite. Why is that little bit of information there? Well, Caleb, you remember, was the famous Israelite spy who, along with Joshua, was the only two of the 12 spies in Canaan to believe God would give them victory over the Canaanites. Caleb was a member of the tribe of Judah, and his clan, his family, founded the city of Bethlehem where lots of other families from the tribe of Judah lived, including David's family. In other words, Nabal was one of David's cousins. They were relatives, and relatives protected each other. And in the ancient Near East, if a guy could show that he was your 15th cousin 17 times removed on your mother's side, you were still family. And so that was was the culture. And now it came to sheep shearing time. And David knows that Nabal is making tons of money. David has been protecting his family's interests. And so he asks a normal family favor. This was totally in the realm of reality. Beginning in verse 4, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men. And David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds, and that's, by the way, a way of saying, I hear you just made a ton of money. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, meaning the favor is about to be asked. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. It's sheep shearing time. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Now, admittedly, he's asking Nabal to feed his army of 600 men. And that's a large favor. But given the fact that David had preserved in today's dollars tens of thousands of dollars of, of merchandise. And the fact that it's a family duty, that's not entirely unreasonable. That's not unreasonable. And now Nabal is going to respond badly, and then David's going to respond badly. And now you have sort of a battle of the egos happening. Uh, Basically, this is how wars start sometimes. And so now you have the beginning of this escalation. Verse 9, When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword and every every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Now tensions are high. You have Nabal sitting high and mighty, and David having just been insulted, getting ready to destroy Nabal and all his men. I mean, how insulting to say, who is David? A, their family, and they know each other. And B, he's not a nobody. We're going to find out in verse 30 that everybody knew that David had been anointed the next king of Israel. So, what was the other dynamic at play here? The other dynamic is that almost certainly Nabal was a backer of Saul. And so he says, Everyone's taking sides. And Nabal just took his side. He just said, I take Saul's side. Who is David? Who is this rogue? Nabal, of course, has no sense that all that he has comes from God. There's no sense of gratitude. He's not a man of faith in any sense. He refuses to give David, verse 11, my bread, my water, my meat. There's no gratitude. And so upon hearing this response, David carefully considers his options for 0.3 seconds. And in fact, if you look between verses 12 and 13... You see that little white space right there between 12 and 13? Look down at verse 21. This is what happens in that white space. Verse 21, Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David much more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Then, verse 13, he said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And so now you have 400 men with swords, and David as well. He's not going to wash his hands of this. He's going to be right there with them, and there's no lack of clarity as to what their intentions are. They're going to go and wipe out Nabal and all of his men. And so now that the, the drama is heating up. David's men are preparing to go to battle to slaughter Nabal and his crew. And now, we it's rare that you can say this, but we can literally say, meanwhile, back at the ranch, in verse 14, "...but one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, "...behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them." They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, and took two hundred loaves, and two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seas of parched grain. And a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Verse 23 When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face. And bowed to the ground. Her servants knew that David was right. They knew that Nabal was wrong. In fact, the servant spokesman knew that Abigail would agree with him. Verse 17 he openly calls Nabal a worthless man. They've clearly had this conversation more than once. Everyone knew Nabal's character all the way to the point that they even had the sympathetic ear of Nabal's wife. Abigail, she was not loyal to her husband's sin. She was loyal to her husband, but she was not loyal to her husband's sin. Now, Abigail apparently could do big things in a hurry. She was used to giving orders. She was a leader. She had the hearts of her servants, and they knew that that she was their only hope to survive the coming attack. She didn't tell Nabal what she was doing because she completely agreed with her servant's assessment of her husband. People were going to die if she didn't intervene. This was going to be a bloodbath. This was going to be a slaughter. And now Abigail gives one of the greatest diplomatic speeches ever recorded in Scripture. It's eloquent. It's beautiful. It's truthful. She's humble. But what we're going to see here in Abigail's plea to David is the heart of a woman who has faith in God despite her own suffering and despite a a seemingly hopeless situation that she's personally in. And yet, despite her own situation, she's going to encourage David, you wait on God. Don't take matters in your own hands. And, And this is so amazing because, listen, David could be the solution to all of her problems. All she had to do was say, oh, look at the time. I think I'll go to the mall for the next two days. And come back, and she is a widow, and she's rich. And all of her problems are solved. And and maybe she could even say to David, Spare my servants, but do what you want to Nabal. She could have been free. She could have been wealthy. But she had the heart of a Yahweh worshiper. And she was most concerned about pleasing God. In fact, this is where Abigail has so much to say to you. And I, I suggest that she could inspire you and inspire me. To have godly responses to pain And I'd like to give you four of them Four godly responses to pain When you're waiting on the Lord And we'll organize it this way There's one don't And three insteads One don't and three insteads First Don't be consumed by what pains you Don't be consumed by what pains you So Abigail begins this amazing speech Verses 24 and 25 She fell at his feet And said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly or foolishness is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She treats David with tremendous humility, tremendous respect. In fact, in this speech, she never addresses David by name, but 14 times. She calls him my Lord. She calls herself your servant. And she humbly takes responsibility. She takes the blame. What a wise way to try to keep this from being a battle of egos between Nabal and David. She said, it's not Nabal's fault. It's not your fault. It's just, it's my fault. And she takes the blame. She's completely truthful. She acknowledges that Nabal is rightly named a fool. She doesn't try to cover that fact. But listen to this. She tells David not to regard Nabal, not to let him get under his skin, not to obsess on the source of his pain, not to obsess on the source of his offense, to not be gripped or preoccupied with that which is negative, that which is upsetting. Why can she tell David this? Because it's the same lesson she's had to learn about the same man. She's had to learn, don't regard this fool. Don't give him the time of day. Certainly we could surmise that Abigail had experienced many days of hopelessness and even depression. But through that, she had learned, do not regard this worthless fellow. In fact, in really a great irony, by her patience and by her humility, she is serving her husband, who is a worthless fellow. She's saving his life. So how do we know that her pain wasn't consuming her? Well, we know it wasn't consuming her because she didn't take the easy way out of it. She could have fallen down before David and said, I'll wait here while you go change my life. But she didn't. She didn't take the easy way out because she wasn't consumed by her pain. Now, What I love about Abigail being the one to teach us this lesson is that no one can say here, well, you just don't understand. You don't understand what it's like to suffer. You don't understand what it's like to wait on the Lord. Abigail understood as well as anybody she lived under the harsh hand of a tyrant She was constantly trying to please him and probably was never able to do so I I think many of us would shrink into emotional oblivion under that sort of abusive treatment, but she made a different choice Nabal was not going to consume her. He was not going to determine her attitude He was not going to determine her trust in the lord. He wasn't going to control her thoughts He wasn't going to control where she placed her affections And she chose to do two things, at least, that we know of. She had a genuine trust in the Lord, and she was a a friend to all of the servants in the household who were also under the dominion of Nabal. And Abigail did exactly what the apostle Peter told suffering servants to do. At the end of 1 Peter, in chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. She's humble. She's trusting the hand of God. And as, as we'll see in a minute, she's put all of her anxieties at the Lord's feet. And that is, in fact, a choice that you can make to decide to not be consumed by that which pains you. That doesn't mean your emotions won't betray you, that doesn't mean that you won't have the occasional anxiety attack or, or whatnot. It's not going to instantly make you feel better, but what it does mean is that you can press on, that you can do something else instead, that you can make other choices. Listen, sometimes we can believe the lie that we're going to feel better if we simply sit down and savor the pain and think about it all the time. That doesn't work. Don't be consumed by what pains you. But Abigail shows us a second godly response to pain or waiting on the Lord. This is where we get to our insteads. Don't be consumed by what pains you. Instead, be intentionally righteous. Instead, be intentionally righteous. She continues her speech in verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. This is so loaded. First of all, she invokes a very solemn oath. As the Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives. In other words, by the life of God and by your own life. She's going to say, don't do this thing. But she says it with such tenderness and gentleness and diplomacy. She tells him that the sin that he's about to commit is terrible. And she speaks to him as if he's already decided not to do it, as if he's already made a decision. Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. Very wise way to put this. What David was about to do was not to fight a war on behalf of his nation. What he was about to do was to murder a man for insulting him. And we can't elevate it to any higher level than that. David was about to go essentially commit mass murder with a bunch of thugs. Abigail is so wise. She didn't rail against him. She didn't nag him. She said, isn't it great that the Lord has stopped you from committing murder? Isn't God good? Isn't he kind? And what a righteous woman to be able to say it in that positive way. And she she gently convicts David of not trusting the Lord and instead of trying to take matters into her own hands. She said that the Lord had stopped him, quote, from saving with your own hand. And she reminds him that God is the one who will deal with God's enemies. And again, she says it positively. Let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. This is so important because the, the suppressed and the mistreated wife of Nabal is saying, Will you trust the Lord to take care of Nabal? The implication being, just as I have done. I think this is the only person who could have swayed David's opinion away from killing Nabal. One who was suffering under Nabal's hand, even worse than David had. And this is a loaded statement in which she invokes this solemn oath and she points out David's sin and urges him to trust the Lord and not himself. She's she's counseling him be intentionally righteous. Make a better decision. Don't let the emotion of the situation dictate how you respond. And with great, great wisdom, she's giving David what he wanted in the first place, a meal for his men. That's all he wanted. And so she brought that. And in verse 27, she gently says, I brought you what you need. Please accept this gift. And she calls herself the servant of David. And she gives David a feast that took many donkeys to carry. What an eye-opening reminder to David to please the Lord. Now, I want to remind you of the larger context. In chapter 24, just the chapter right before, David wouldn't touch the king. And the king deserved to die. But he's not hesitant to eliminate a private citizen. He was clear that he wasn't to take vengeance on Saul, but he didn't make that connection with Nabal in the very next chapter. And her basic message is, is, I've learned that I have to watch my sinful responses to Nabal. I've learned this. You must learn that now, or you'll make a mistake that you'll regret for the rest of your life. You must learn that now. You must be intentionally righteous. You must make a better decision. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Peter said to do when faced with emotionally and spiritually trying circumstances, right after saying in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, to humble yourselves into the mighty hand of God and to cast all your anxieties on him, then he warns in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, as a Christian, you're not in danger that Satan is going to devour your soul. That's not the point. You're not in, in danger of Satan taking away your salvation. He can't do that. But Peter calls him your adversary. It's a Greek word which means your accuser. The one who says you're doing something wrong. One who brings a charge in a lawsuit. And what might Satan want to accuse you of? Listen, Satan is not the most powerful when he's telling lies about you. Satan is the most powerful when he's telling the truth about you. Earlier in the letter, 1 Peter 2.12, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is it that Satan, the accuser, wants to charge you with? He wants to charge you with sinning in response to suffering. By the way, exactly the same charge he wanted to bring against Job. Same thing. And so Peter gives the solution. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Against what? Against your own sinful responses. That's how we're sober-minded. That's how we're watchful. There's no hocus-pocus here. The spiritual warfare is not some sort of fancy prayer that you pray in the Pentecostal church. The spiritual warfare is stop sinning when you suffer. Stop. Stop responding to hard times or disappointment by giving Satan a foothold to begin to erode the Lord's blessing in your life because you're choosing to sin in response to pain. So she would say, don't be consumed by what pains you. Instead, be intentionally righteous. Abigail would have a a third lesson for us. Don't be consumed by what pains you. Instead, represent God well. Represent God well. Verse 28 The lesson she's learned that she's trying to impart to David. She says, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. And again, Abigail takes the blame. She's willing to take responsibility to help David not sin. And look what Abigail knows. She knows that David has been anointed the next king of Israel. Everybody knew that. So she tells him in very kind and gentle terms, you're sent by God to fight God's battles, not to take revenge on a man who's not even worth mentioning. And then she lays on the conviction. And I imagine how how gently she must have spoken this, and yet how piercingly it must have gone through David's heart. She says, Evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. In other words, you are God's representative on earth. You are God's man. You are God's king. Don't smear the name of God for one wicked act. And she comforts him, she encourages him. In verse 29, If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God and the lives of your enemies. He shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. In other words, if you're really God's man on God's mission, trust the Lord and he will preserve you. And did you notice what she brings up here? She knows that David's life is in danger. She knows that there's tension and that Saul, the king of Israel, the most powerful man in the nation, is after David. He's been going after him. He's chasing him down. And Abigail transcends the situation with Nabal. And she so wisely, she knows that Nabal isn't the real cause of David's anxiety. She knows that Nabal is just sort of the, the figurehead it represents something that David can do something about. He can't do anything about Saul, but Nabal comes along and and by golly, I'll do something about him. And she transcends that. And she goes to the heart of his worry and his concern. And she comforts him because Nabal isn't the real source of David's angst and anxiety. The pressures of Saul's pursuit, the limbo that David is in, that's the real pressure. And Nabal is just the, the relief valve. There's an old story that's told in Texas about a hunter who couldn't get a deer for all of his efforts. And finally, at the end of the day, he emptied all of his guns on a squirrel because he just needed to let that anxiety out. And that poor old squirrel just got blown to smithereens because he couldn't get the deer. David can't do anything about Saul, but he can do something about Nabal. And Abigail says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Represent God better. And she seals the deal by affirming to David that God is in control, that the, the real issue of the day isn't some idiot named Nabal. The real issue is being prepared to receive the throne of Israel. Look at verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. That's the real issue Verse 31, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. Oh, how wise she is. She's telling David something that she's learned in the smaller venue of her own marriage. Abigail is concerned for herself that she not violate her conscience by doing wrong to her husband, no matter how terrible he is. Here she is trying to protect her husband, even though he's a horrible person. That as a God-fearer, she wants to represent God well. And now in the much larger venue, the bigger stage of the future of God's people, of God's nation, she's encouraging David to not do something that will haunt him for the rest of his life and cause regret. I think you can almost hear the undercurrent of a previous determination that Abigail certainly made in her own heart that the most... Important priority for her was not getting everything she wanted out of her marriage, not getting the husband of her dreams, but being remarkable in her godliness, being memorable in her character, being pleasing to her God. After telling the suffering Christian to resist the devil by being watchful and sober-minded, Peter exhorts in 1 Peter 5, verse 9, Resist him, that is the devil, firm in your faith. In other words, be resolute in your trust in the Lord and therefore represent him well. I don't know what disappoints you about yourself, but what disappoints me about myself are times when I'm tempted to come apart at the seams over a crisis, when I'm tempted to panic. Instead, I I need to stop and I need to trust the Lord. I need to remember that my God has all the power and all the resources I need. it really is a very simple question. While I wait on the Lord or while I suffer, am I representing the Lord well? Am I somebody that he would be proud to show off? Am I demonstrating that as a believer in Christ, I take such comfort and such strength and such solace from the Savior that I can walk through anything? Am I demonstrating that? And then Abigail takes one little opportunity to ask for mercy at the end of verse 31 And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. She serves him first and then tacks on one request for herself. And we'll see later that David will remember this request. But for the moment, that brings us to one more lesson in a godly response from Abigail. She says, first, don't be consumed by what pains you. Second, instead, be intentionally righteous. Third, instead, represent God well. And finally, instead, let God use you while you wait. Let God use you while you wait. Your time of waiting on the Lord is never about you. It's never just about you. It's, we've already seen in other messages how the Lord's work in an individual life always has a larger significance. But in this case, Abigail seems to know it. She seems to understand this. She knows what's going on. And in her brilliant speech here, her focus is not just on saving Nabal's life. Her focus is on David not getting sidetracked, or if I could put it this way, on David not disqualifying himself to be the king of Israel. She knows that's the issue that's happening. He is the rightful king, and boy, he knew it. He knew she was completely right. She was used of God for a purpose much bigger than just saving old Nabal's neck. Abigail, at that moment, was the better believer in Yahweh. She had more faith. She had more patience, patience, and David, Immediately acknowledged that in verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, your goodness. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had there had not been left in Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. Now, while we've learned valuable lessons from Abigail, she's really not the main point of this chapter. She's not really the main reason the chapter is here. She's a pivot point in the redemptive plan of God We need a greater understanding even of the political climate. There there was tension between Saul and David, even to the point of Saul trying to take David's life. But in this period of Israel's history between the judges and the kings, this period of flux and uncertainty before a final true king is really established, there had always been one area of consistency. Both of these men even could come back to this one area of consistency. There had been a consistent father figure that gave the nation stability and hope and guidance. And this father figure dealt with both Saul and David. He was a significant help to both of them. Why is David so tense? Why is he ready to liquidate Nabal? Look back with me at chapter 25, verse 1. Here's why it's so tense. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Samuel, the father figure, priest and prophet and judge of Israel, he's dead, and now the nation is in the middle of terrible uncertainty. Tensions are high, loyalties are being determined, sides are being taken. Basically, a civil war is ready to start. And in fact, right after Abigail saved David from himself in chapters 26 through 31, we see the chronicle of really the end of Saul's reign. And in the very next chapter, David once again has the chance to kill Saul and he spares him. Did you catch this little sandwich happening here? First Samuel 24, David has the chance to kill Saul and spares him. Ver- chapter 26, David has the chance to kill Saul and spares him. Right in the middle, chapter 25, David has the chance to kill Nabal and isn't going to spare him. And yet Abigail helps him to make a wise decision. And because of this, By the end of 1 Samuel, Saul is dead by God's hand, not by David's. David's hands are clean of this. Now, what would have happened if David had slaughtered Nabal's household? Very likely, he would have been regarded as nothing more than a thug with a huge personal army, and he could not have received the throne of Israel. David would only be a worthy king if he followed and obeyed the Lord in righteousness. If he acted the part of a thug and a dictator, then he'd be disqualified from the throne. And if David is disqualified from the throne, then Jesus Christ cannot come as the final Davidic king. And so Abigail was God's mercy, not only to David, Abigail was God's mercy to his entire redemptive plan. This one day, this one speech was a pivot point on all of redemptive history. She reminded David not to seek his own vengeance, and therefore she kept him worthy of the throne. Now I can't say with confidence that your pursuit of godliness while you wait on the Lord is going to have ramifications for the scope of all of redemptive history, probably not. But I do know that you can let God use you while you wait. I do know that you can be a servant of the Lord that you always have a mission right where you are in this moment. You have a mission to serve the Lord and his kingdom program in whatever small way you can. And by the way, that makes the time go faster while you wait. Abigail made the time go by by serving her household, by even serving her husband, by being a godly wife, by being a godly help to the servants who were all scared to death of Nabal. And then ultimately by serving not only David, but serving all of redemptive history. And did God come through for Abigail? Absolutely. Verse 36, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. He probably had a stroke. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Do you see the contrast? That is such an important phrase, the Lord struck Nabal. Abigail said to David, wait on the Lord, wait on him. And he did, and so did she. Did David remember Abigail? Abigail. Absolutely. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted the donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So David clearly had a soft spot in his heart for Abigail. She was a beautiful and righteous woman. And there's... No way to know for certain but I have to wonder if David maybe had a soft spot for her also since there's only one other woman in the Bible named Abigail and that was David's sister somebody that he would be familiar with Do you remember at the very beginning of the bigger context of 1st and 2nd Samuel that in the transition of Israel to a true kingdom with a king after God's own heart, you remember Hannah's prophetic prayer in 1 Samuel 2, how it inaugurated the beginning of a transition to the kingdom, that what what will happen when a godly king of Israel comes? She said, the Lord kills, the Lord brings to life, he brings down to Sheol, he raises up, the Lord makes poor and he makes rich, he brings low and he exalts, he raises up the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And now Abigail has become a picture of what God does with those who are most in trouble when a righteous king is in Israel. And she becomes the picture of this. That those who seek after him from the position of humility and need will always be lifted up. The song of Hannah was beginning to come true. God was striking down the proud and he was lifting up the humble. And so Abigail went from the oppressed bride of a tyrant to the blessed bride of a king. And the ultimate Davidic king, the descendant of David named Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, he will bring a rescued bride to himself, a bride rescued from sin and from judgment. By the way, once a Davidic king commits to you, he will do everything in his power to keep you. First Samuel 30 records that the Amalekites kidnapped Abigail, and David took, you guessed it, four hundred men, and this time they strapped their swords on for a righteous battle, and this time they left none alive except a few who escaped. Then he rescued her, and in the same way, the Lord Jesus, our Davidic king, will never let you go once he has made you part of his bride, you are his. And so based on the fact that you belong to Christ and that God will be faithful to you, let's take Abigail's lesson to be remarkable in your godliness while you wait. Because as the Apostle Peter promises at the very end of 1 Peter 5, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, And establish you. And so if you will be like Abigail, you can receive that promise as well. Our Father, it is to our benefit to wait well. It is to our benefit to be remarkable in godliness and to use our time of waiting, not to try desperately to solve the problem, not to try desperately to shorten the time frame, but to really work at godliness to work at responding in a way that's pleasing to you, to work at representing you well, to, be, to work at being intentionally righteous, to, to work at being used of you wherever we are at this moment, that while we wait, we can always do something. And Lord, if we will believe the Apostle Peter, there will be such a glorious grand day of reconciliation and all things being made right and brought together. And so we look forward to that day. I know that seated in this room, there are people who are waiting and waiting and for some of them they're waiting for things that they already know with 100% certainty cannot happen in this life that must wait for eternity and so Lord we would ask you for patience to wait and we would ask you for a determination to be remarkable that if a chapter in the Bible were to be written about us that might we be as Abigail who comes out shining as an example of godliness in the midst of waiting. We pray these things for Christ's sake.